I'm thankful that we can all be together uh, once again this evening. I'm glad for your presence here. And uh, I'm especially glad for the presence of Gail Woodall here tonight, our sister over there. All the heads turned your way, Gail. They're looking for you. The lady in green. Uh, we're glad that she's here, spoke with her and uh, her good friend and relative Melba and Billy Jack out in the lobby. They said that Gail is seeing a lot of improvement, and uh, for that we are very, very thankful. It's been a long road, but it sounds like it's headed in the right direction. We've been praying for Gail for a, for a good while and thankful that God is answering those prayers. Uh, this evening is going to be, in, in a way, a continuation of this morning. You know, we're doing this series called More About Jesus, and we're looking at all of the ways, again, not all, but many of the ways that the New Testament connects Jesus with all sorts of ideas and items and figures from the Old Testament. We've talked so far about how he is the offspring of Abraham, how he is the new and improved temple of God, how he is the better priest, the great high priest. And for the Jews, of course, all of these things have were always in the mind of God and were certainly inspired by God in, in the recording of the New Testament. But these types of connections that the New Testament makes in regard to Jesus with the Old Testament, they, they served a couple important functions. I think for the Jews, they served an apologetic function. And by that I mean um, they sought to prove the veracity of the Christian faith. We know that in the New Testament, the, some Jews had second thoughts about convert, converting to Christianity for various reasons. Some because of persecution. Others just because of nagging doubts. Have we made the right decision? Is this really the Christ? And they felt the draw back to Judaism. Some of them were, were tempted to just drift back into their old ways. And much of the New Testament is, is written, the book of Hebrews uh, has in its mind Jews who might be doubting their newfound Christian faith and saying, no, let me, let me show you that Jesus is better, that He is the, the fulfillment of all that has come before, all, all that we have believed and practiced. Jesus is it. He's the one all this stuff is pointing toward. Now, I think for us as Christians today, it is a reminder of the continuity of the Scriptures. The fact that the Scriptures tell one giant, grand, cohesive story. Jesus didn't just appear out of nowhere on, you know, in the first century. Uh, that when we begin reading about his story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's a story that began well before he was born. And so it's a reminder to us that this is a grand narrative that really only God could create, only God could write. All of these connections that we see the New Testament writers uh, making with Jesus and Old Testament ideas. As you know, this morning we talked about how uh, Jesus is the great high priest. And I'm very mindful uh, in thinking about what I preach of my audience. And as you know, on Sunday morning, you know, we have we average over 380, 390 here. 
People, uh, all types of people. People at various stages in their walk with Christ. Various levels of maturity. And so when I'm thinking about what to preach and how to preach it, maybe it's not always evident to you, but I I try to put some thought into it. I, I want to provide some of the basics of Christianity for those who are babes in Christ. I want them to be able to to understand what I'm talking about. If they haven't been Christians for very long, if we've got a family who's visiting for the first time or they haven't been coming to church for very long. But I also want to provide enough depth, I'll say for you guys, those of you who are more mature in your faith, who've been Christians longer, In an earlier draft of the sermon for this morning, I thought about preaching on some of what I'm going to preach on tonight. But I think as we proceed, you will come to the same determination that I did, that this stuff is better suited for the Sunday night crowd, in in my opinion, at least. Uh, But we are going to, we're going to start where we left off this morning, and we're really taking a deep dive into Hebrews tonight, where we were today. So, In Hebrews 4, uh, beginning there, as we mentioned this morning, the writer begins to establish that Jesus is the great high priest. And we talked about how that means he is the only one that we need uh, mediating our relationship with God in contrast to the Levitical priesthood under the, the, the Mosaic law and covenant that, you know, carried forth for many generations. The Hebrews writer says, Jesus is better. Jesus is now the only priest that you need, the only one uh, who can can intercede on your behalf, the only one who is now the go-between. The priesthood, the Levitical priesthood under the law of Moses, that's a thing of the past. Jesus is now our perfect representative before God, our sole mediator Uh, I want to look in verse 14 again, read verses 14 through 16, some verses that we looked at this morning. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so Jesus is the ideal. He is the perfect high priest. Who better to represent us before God than one who is like us in every respect? And who better to represent God to us than one who is like Him in every respect? One who is both completely divine and completely human. 100% God and 100% man. Jesus Christ, the great high priest. The only one who can be the perfect mediator between us and between sinful humanity and a holy God. All things that we talked about this morning. But things get confusing in the, in the Hebrew text, Hebrews text. And some difficult reading. Uh, Let's just get into it. Chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Everything so far is clear, uh, for the most part, in my mind, about this idea of Jesus being the great high priest. But then you look at chapter 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, 
you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Christ the Son appointed uh, by God the Father to be uh, a high priest. Pretty clear on that. But verse 6, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And poor Jackson, I made him read this text earlier, and he did a good job with it, but had a little trouble with that name, and I'm not picking on Jackson, because I love Jackson, and he's my good friend and my brother, and others of you might have had trouble with that name too. It's not a name that we come across very often, it's not a name that we talk talk about frequently. Melchizedek, who is that? You know, seemingly just sort of dropped down here in front of us in the book of Hebrews. But it's not a passing reference here. Uh, If you keep going, verse 9, and being made perfect, talking about Jesus again, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's something significant about this Melchizedek figure in regard to our understanding of Jesus Christ and His identity and His purpose. The text says, God has made Him a high priest after the order, after the example of Melchizedek. You know, who is this guy? And why is the Hebrews, why does the Hebrews writer deem it important to include him in his defense of the Christian faith? Well, let's see tonight uh, in the short time that we have left if we can figure this mystery out together. Now, in verse 6, the Hebrews writer quotes Psalm 110. So I think that's a good place to begin. Maybe you already have your Bible out and keep your place in Hebrews. Let's go all the way back to the Psalms and just read. Maybe Psalm 110. We'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 4 and just get a sense here of what the psalmist is saying. Psalm 110, starting at verse 1, and going to verse 4. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Maybe for for you New Testament students, that sounds familiar. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is a psalm that became closely connected with Jesus in the early church. And and of course, Because of our belief about the scriptures, we know that the psalmist was inspired by God to write down these words uh, that pointed ahead to the future arrival of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And this, the first verse there appears as a fulfilled prophecy uh, in the New Testament. So that looks ahead to the time of Christ. Uh, And this phrase in verse 4, it's directly connected with Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, which which shows us that what the psalmist, the person the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 110, verse 4. 
is fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what we now understand from the Hebrews writer is that the one about whom the psalmist is speaking in Psalm 110.4 is Christ. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But we still, even after looking at Psalm 110, we still don't know who Melchizedek is or why a connection with him is significant. To track him down, we have to go back even further uh, in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. All right, so rewind even further back to the story of Abraham in Genesis 14. And we will begin reading in verse 17. After his, that is, Abraham's return from the defeat of, I'm going to do my best with this, Shador Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. So this is after Abraham has returned from defeating an enemy. And here we go. Look in verse 18. There he is. There's our man. And Melchizedek king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. In parentheses, he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything uh, as a symbol of gesture of gratitude. Abram gives him a tithe, a tenth of what he has because of Melchizedek's blessing upon him. So there he is. And just as mysteriously as he appears, he's gone. We don't read about him before then or after. This is the only occurrence in the scriptures of Melchizedek outside of Psalm 110 and Hebrews. Uh, We know from this passage that he is king of Salem, which was actually Jerusalem before Israel came and dwelled there. Uh, And he was a priest of God, a priest of God. But before the priestly lineage was established through Levi, of course, many years before uh, Levi... Uh, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, came to be. And yet, we're reading in our New Testaments, and despite the obscurity of this figure, the Hebrews writer decides to yank him out of history and plop him right on the pages of our New Testament and compare him to Jesus Christ, of course inspired by the Holy Spirit to do that. And he provides a lengthy treatment of the connection in Hebrews 7. And I'm telling you, it is not easy reading. And so I am not going to read it uh, verbatim. You can go home and do that tonight if you'd like in chapter 7. What I'm going to do is hit the the highlights here, the main ideas. uh, In trying to answer this question, what is the Hebrews writer trying to tell us about Jesus Christ and his priesthood. What is the purpose for this Melchizedek connection? All right, so here we go. 
I've got just four short things to share with you. Here's what the connection's all about for the Hebrews writer. Like Melchizedek, Jesus Christ is not from the tribe of Levi, and yet he was still a priest. So the Hebrews writer sees that it would be wise to connect Jesus Christ to Melchizedek in order to prove or establish his priesthood. Now from this morning, you know, as we talked about, priests in Israel, they were of the tribe of Levi, they were Levites, and the the high priests were from the family of Aaron, Moses' brother. But Christ, he wasn't of the family of Levi. He wasn't part of that tribe. He was from Judah's line, right? And priests didn't come out of Judah's line. And so maybe the Hebrews writer is anticipating Jewish Christians who would be reading this book who say, how could Jesus be a priest? He's not part of the the uh, Levites, and only Levites can be priests. And so the Hebrews writer says, he's a priest like Melchizedek was a priest. The Old Testament calls Melchizedek a priest, but you know what? He lived well, well before Levi. And so his priesthood wasn't about his lineage. Jesus is a priest after the likeness of Melchizedek, as we read about in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 20, who preceded Levi and Aaron and the Mosaic priesthood. So yes, Jesus is a priest, and he can be a priest outside of the tribe of Levi because Melchizedek was. So that's one big connection. Here's the second. Like Melchizedek... Christ is superior to Abraham and therefore greater than the priests who descended from Abraham, who came from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's son Levi and his family who became the priests. We see that in our text in Genesis, Abraham receives a gift from Melchizedek. He receives a blessing from Melchizedek. And then he feels obligated to give a tenth of his spoils back. And so this exchange shows that Melchizedek, this king and this priest, he clearly has the upper hand. In Hebrews chapter 7 at verse 9, we read, One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Still in the loins of his ancestors. He hadn't even been thought of yet except by God. And so Melchizedek is as a priest greater than Levi. And Jesus is like Melchizedek in that he's greater than Levi too. And he's greater than all the priests that came from Levi. And he's greater than Aaron and all the high priests that were part of his family. Jesus is superior to to all of them. Yes, he's in Abraham's lineage, but he's greater than all his descendants. As Melchizedek was greater, so is Jesus greater as well. Number three, like Melchizedek, Christ is a royal priest, meaning he is both king and priest. Now in Israel, kings were not priests, and priests We're not kings. You could be one and not the other, and not both. 
But on the pages of the New Testament, we see that it, it is claimed of Jesus that he is, well, as I said this morning, prophet, priest, and king. But for our purposes, priest and king. And some Jewish Christians might say, he can't be both, you've got to pick. He's either got to be king or priest, not both. The Hebrews writer says, remember Melchizedek? This mysterious figure from long ago? He was both. He was both. And Jesus is both too. He is both sovereign king and the great high priest. And here's the last one. Like Melchizedek, Christ is king and priest inherently and not because of his ancestry. As we said earlier, Melchizedek came well before this lineage was established from which the priests would come. He was just a king and just a priest because of who he was inherently. And Jesus is too. It's part of his identity. And it's not due to his bloodline. Just like Melchizedek. So, in Melchizedek, the Hebrews writer, finds someone who can serve as a meaning-rich metaphor for Christ, despite his mysterious life. The Hebrews writer says this about him, chapter 7, verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, what does that mean? A lot of scholars have debated, what is he saying about Melchizedek? Who is this guy? I don't think he's necessarily saying that he didn't have a mother or a father or a genealogy and that he was never born and he never died. I think that he's saying that this Melchizedek guy just sort of appears out of nowhere on the pages of the scriptures and we don't know his mama and we don't know his daddy and we don't read about when he was born and we don't read about when he died. He just sort of pops out of nowhere and as mysteriously as he came, he disappears. But the Hebrews writer, inspired by God, finds in this shadowy figure a means of explaining Christ's unique nature in a convicting and convincing and remarkable way. He sees in this person, Melchizedek, a preview of the priesthood of Jesus. And now that we've reached the end of this lesson, you might be saying, yeah, he was right to not try to share that on a Sunday morning. That's some pretty deep, strange stuff. But it should remind us that the Word of God contains unsearchable riches. And we can never plumb the depths of the wisdom of this book. We must always be seeking uh, in the treasure house of God's Word to understand God better in order to get a better sense of His will for our lives. Studying God's Word ought to be an exciting endeavor for us. One that is thrilling and illuminating and enlightening. Uh, and, you know, we've kind of chased a rabbit trail tonight with Melchizedek, but I hope that maybe now, when you stumble upon his name 
in the scriptures, you'll at least have a baseline knowledge about who he was and why it was important for the Hebrews writer to bring him up centuries after he lived and died in order to connect him with Jesus. My children are telling me that it's time to wrap it up. And so I'm going to do that. Uh, tonight, if you haven't uh, uh, taken on Christ in baptism, if you have not devoted your life to him, you have the opportunity to do that. We're about to sing a song. You can come and say, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Son of God. He is the great high priest. He is the only one uh, who can bring me into the presence of God now and forevermore. You can repent of your sins, be baptized so that those can be forgiven of you, removed as far from you as the east is from the west, and you'll be a new creature. Uh, and you'll walk out those doors ready to face the world as a child of God. If you're struggling in any other way and you need the prayers of this church body, we invite you to come. Why don't you do that tonight as we stand and sing? Oh, do not.